14, David is speaking this psalm, and we're told from the beginning of the psalm that it was a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, that he spoke uh, as a, a song on the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And we talked about how Psalm 18 is basically, in a lot of ways, a ditto copy or almost a duplicate copy of Second Samuel chapter 22, where David writes this song of praise, really to just give testimony and celebration to God's deliverance in his life from King Saul, from his enemies and the many difficulties that he went through in his life. And it was just a song uh, of deliverance from danger, how God came to him and assisted him, delivered him in the midst of his many battles, helped him to overcome his enemies. And he was talking about this, again, using picturesque language, how the Lord sent from above and just intervened to help him in the midst of his difficulties and did whatever was necessary to bring about victory for him and deliverance when it was needed in his life. And David was talking about, as we kind of left off last time, how uh, by the Lord he could run against the troop and leap over a wall and how God's way was perfect and that there was no rock uh, like our God and that it was God, he said, who armed him with strength and and God who, he said, verse 32, made his way perfect. And, and I think that's interesting that David there in uh, verse 30 says, as for God, his way is perfect. And then he says there in verse 32 that he says, God makes my way perfect. In other words, when, when my way aligns with God's way, then I experience uh, what God intends for me, that God's way is, is, and it is, is it not? God's way in comparison to the world's way, in comparison to our way, God's way is perfect, is it not? I mean, the, the way of the Lord is always right. We always can look upon it and say, wow, I mean, that your, yeah, your way was just perfect in that situation. That was the perfect path. That was the exact way that something should have come to pass. Uh, and we want our lives, we want our path, our way to come in alignment with God's way so that ultimately God can bring about the perfection or the completion of our way and that he can make our way perfected as it lines up with his. And David was just describing how God gave him whatever was necessary, even as he says there as we left off last time, how God made his feet like the feet of a deer. The idea is sure and steady as deers are able to walk on these very narrow and rocky cliffs. Uh, there and they're very evident uh, the gazelles and the deers in the area of Israel if you see some of the rocky areas in Engede and I have some pictures of uh, when I was there in Israel I mean some of these uh, little ledges that they walk on are, are incredible and, and how sure-footed these animals are that though they could easily fall to their destruction uh, just the way God's created them that they're very sure and steady uh, and David said, this is what God does. Whatever the situation, no matter how narrow the path, no matter what the circumstance, God always finds a way to shore up my steps, to make sure I have what I need to do what he asked me to do. And we left off last time talking about how David even said in verse 34 there that it was God who taught his hands to make war. Again, David was a, 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 a warrior. David fought many battles. He was a military general and a military king so that his arms could bend a bow of bronze, that as God equipped him and God strengthened him even to fight in the battles that he found himself in in the midst of conflict. He goes on there, verse 35, talking again about how God equipped him for his battles and whatever things he had to face. 
He says, verse 35, you have also given me the shield of your salvation. So again, of God's protection, salvation there in the sense of not eternal salvation, but deliverance. God, you've provided a shield so that I might experience salvation or deliverance from you. Your right hand, he said, has held me up. So when David was weary, when David felt like he was about to stumble, or maybe when he did at times come into a place where he would have tripped and fallen and been taken advantage of, he says, Lord, it was your right hand that was there to hold me up. And then this beautiful statement, the refrain, the last part of verse 35, I've always liked this little statement here the Holy Spirit gives to us through David's thoughts. He says, verse 35, the end of it, Lord, your gentleness has made me great. I like that. He talks about the gentleness of God. Now, keep in mind, this is in the midst of a psalm where if you remember back in uh, verses, for example, you know, 13, 14, 15, he's talking about how the Lord thundered from heaven. The most high uttered his voice, hailstones of coals and fire, uh, you know, lightnings in abundance. He talks about verse 15, the channels of the sea were seen. Uh, at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. So again, in this psalm, he's talking about God's incredible power. And he's talking about God's authority, how God could throw lightning bolts for heaven or cast major hailstones down from heaven as a way of giving victory in the midst of battle. Again, the God of creation, that he controls all these things. I mean, lightning intimidates us, doesn't it? Well, I mean, you hear lightning, you see lightning and you hear thunder sometimes and it's We've got to keep in mind, these are things that God's in control of, that God's created. So the power that God has, all of his authority and all of his greatness, and yet this same almighty, powerful God condescends in such a way, in a gentle, merciful, meek, and gracious way, he meets us and he interacts with us in this very personal way as human beings. I mean, Jesus' very life was the greatest demonstration of that in a lot of ways, that almighty God became humble man. And again, what did Jesus draw attention to, if you remember, about his own life? The only autobiographical statement we have of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, where Jesus says, come and, and learn of me. He says, for I am meek and lowly or gentle in, in heart. And Jesus draws attention to that as an autobiographical statement about himself. I mean, there are a lot of things Jesus could have drew attention to about himself. His power, I mean, he did miracles, right? They saw the power of God working through Jesus as God in the flesh. But the thing that Jesus said, come and learn of me, he says, I'm gentle, I'm meek, I'm lowly in heart. And what is meekness? Meekness is absolute power and authority under control. Like, like a strong thoroughbred or a strong wild horse that's broken, that horse is no less strong, right? It has all the same power and authority within its body, but that power and authority is brought under control. That's the idea of meekness, power and authority under control. And this is the amazing thing about God, that God humbles himself and condescends in a way where in this very gentle, gracious way, in this very humble way, God interacts with us. Though he's this almighty king, you know, interesting that the Bible even speaks about how God, it says in the book of Revelation, is going to wipe away every tear from the eyes of people. I mean, just how, how tender of an image is that if you really think about it? Someone crying and God Almighty, the King of Kings, with his hand tenderly wiping away someone's tear. The, the hand of God, which is so powerful 
but yet so gentle and merciful and kind and that, that God can interact with us in those ways. And notice, David had seen God's power, but what did David say made me great as a man? David says, God, what's made me great, he says there, Lord, it hasn't been your power. It hasn't been, you know, seeing you do some mighty miracle. The thing that has made me great, Lord, he says, is the times that I've experienced your gentleness interacting with me. The times where I've experienced your mercy and your grace and you've shown me how kind and compassionate and gracious and gentle you can be. He says, Lord, that's the thing that has brought about greatness in my life as a man. And, you know, I think that's a very beautiful thing that David, again, this very robust, strong, masculine man, and he appreciated God's gentleness. And he said, that's what made me a great man, learning the gentleness of God that I might incorporate that in my own disposition. He says, Lord, it's your gentleness. Those times you've been so gentle, so personal with me, that's what brought greatness into my life as a person. He says, verse 36, you've enlarged my path under me. The idea again is to make it broad so that he wouldn't slip like that deer falling off the cliff. You've enlarged my path under me so that my feet did not slip. And how wonderful that God's always trying to keep us from slipping, to keep us from from falling and how God has a way of trying to do what's necessary so that he spares us from times where we would fall. He says, verse 37, I've pursued my enemies and overtaken them. Now he goes back to these battle images. Neither did I turn back again until they were destroyed. I have wounded them so that they could not rise. They have fallen under my feet for you have armed me with strength for the day of battle. So David's speaking about how God gave him incredible courage, braveness, you know, just bravery so that he would pursue after his enemies. He was not fearful. Again, God gave him a boldness and a courage because he had a confidence that God was with him. God gave him strength for the battles that he was fighting. He says, you've subdued under me those who rose against me. You've given me the necks of my enemies. The idea there is like putting your foot on the back of your enemy's neck as a demonstration that you've conquered them. So I've destroyed those who hated me. They cried out, but there was none to save, even to the Lord. But he did not answer them. And I beat them as fine as dust before the wind. And I cast them out like dirt in the streets. You have delivered me, he says, from the strivings of the people and made me the head of nations and a people I have not known shall serve me. As soon as they hear of me, they obey me. The foreigners submit to me. The foreigners fade away and come frightened from their hideout. So he's describing how God gave to him tremendous victory. And he realized the only reason he was experiencing victory was because the Lord was the one who was granting him that victory. The Lord gave him the courage. The Lord gave him the boldness to be able to pursue his enemies, to not retreat in fear. The Lord is the one who gave him strength in the battle to overcome times of weakness. The Lord is the one, he says, you've given me the neck of my enemies. In other words, God, it's because of you that I was able to conquer my enemies. And David recognized this, that God is able to give us deliverance over the enemies that we face in our lives. And in the same way that David was was experiencing this literally in military conflict over his enemies, we can experience the same thing spiritually. 
in regards to the enemies that we experience in our lives. And we face enemies as well. We face you know, the enemies of the weakness of our own flesh and different things that we are prone to that can bring destructive things into our lives, areas where you know, certain things become uh, opposed to us. And, and that we all have our own different enemies that we battle from time to time in our lives. And we have to know who our enemies are but the reality is, is God doesn't want us to just retreat. God doesn't want us to just be intimidated and just give in and succumb to our enemies. And we can easily do that. It looks, sometimes our enemies can be things like fear and depression and a propensity to isolation or anxiety or, you know, uh, just, you know, guilt and condemnation because of our past. I mean, you know, these enemies can be different in all of our lives. It could be some habitual sin or some temptation to a particular area that we really struggle with that's a, a sinful behavior. And those enemies want to just intimidate us in a way whereby they they ambush and come against us and that we would just retreat and just give in to them. And that we would lack courage and be passive and let ourselves be overcome. And, and God wants us to, to have a boldness. The Bible says the righteous are bold as a lion. And God doesn't want us to be overcome. God wants us to be overcomers. And the Bible tells us that we can be more than conquerors through him who loves us. Romans chapter 8. And, and David here conquered his physical enemies. And I believe in the same way. The Lord can give to us strength for the battle. The Lord can help us turn back our enemies. And instead of our enemy putting us down and putting its foot on our neck and saying, there you go, I conquered you again, that instead we would conquer our enemies and we would conquer them in the power of the spirit and not let the flesh and those things that oppose us overrule us. David mentions as well how it was the Lord who he says gave to him the experience of exaltation. He mentions in verse 43, Lord, you've given me the head of the, excuse me, you've made me, he says, the head of the nations and a people, he says, I've not known foreigners from other areas. They're now serving me. The idea is that God began to exalt David. He went from just a shepherd boy to someone who was a part of the support staff of King Saul, right? Remember playing music for him and helping out, then fighting battles, becoming a general on the battlefield, and ultimately God raised him up to the place of the throne itself and then even brought other nations under the control of King David when he was the king of Israel. And David never forgot how he arrived to where he was. And this is part of what made David a different king than Saul is Saul forgot that right away. Saul knew he was little in his own eyes for about seven minutes. And then he forgot. And, and, and when all the fame and the position and the power and the accolades and all that came, that was Saul's downfall. Is Saul very quickly forgot that he was just a little nobody from the tribe of Benjamin and that he was just a sharp guy with a little bit of charisma. And he thought somehow that that, that, that just you know, was all his claim to fame. And, and that's what became Saul's downfall and pride. David never forgot that he was just a shepherd boy. And God used him and exalted him, used him, exalted him. And this is one of the things that made David such a wonderful king in Israel's history. As he says, Lord, I realize these things are happening and that you've worked through my life. You've given me victories in these ways. And he says that now there's a people that I don't even know that are serving me. But David realized, Lord, it's you that did this. You have exalted me. You know, the Bible tells us that promotion doesn't come from the east or the west. It comes from the Lord. 
And the Bible gives us one simple encouragement. The Bible says in the New Testament that we're to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, it says, so that he may lift you up in due time. God does want to lift us up, but God waits for us to humble ourselves and not to exalt ourselves so that he can lift us up in his due time in a way that it's a healthy and a good thing. Verse 46, David now begins to rejoice and celebrate over the victory that God gave to him. He says, the Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. Let the God of my salvation be exalted. Again, verse 46 is another verse from the Psalms that has been brought into music. You know, the Lord liveth. Blessed be my rock. Let the God of my salvation be exalted. That's actually a musical song that's been Uh, set to music and we sing as a part of God's family. Now David just celebrating the Lord's goodness and his work through his life. He says, verse 47, for it is God who avenges me and subdues the peoples under me. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me up above those who rise against me and you have delivered me from the violent man. Again, where is David giving all the credit You notice again there at verse 47 and 48, he says, it is God. It is God. That's where all the credit goes to. And he says, God, verse 47, avenges me. That is, God takes care of things when somebody has done me wrong. God avenges me. I don't avenge myself. Bible says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I'll repay. You know, typically somebody does us wrong. We're going to make sure we avenge ourselves. Nobody's going to do me wrong. I'm an American. You know, I got rights. You can't. God says, no, vengeance is mine. You're my child. You're a Christian before you're a citizen. You're a Christian first. (laughs) You're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You conduct yourself differently. Vengeance is mine, God says. I'll repay. Let me do that. David says, it's God who avenges me. Notice, it's God who subdues things that are trying to conquer me, the people. He says, it's God, verse 48, he delivers And he also says, verse 48, it's God who lifts me up. So God avenges, God subdues, God delivers, God lifts me up. And that's why David says it's it's God who deserves all the credit and the glory. Verse 49, he says, therefore, in other words, in light of those things, because the Lord lives and he's my rock, and because he does all these things for me, therefore, David says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name, for great deliverance he gives to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants evermore. So how does David respond to repay God for all the good things God does in his life? Just how great he thinks God is just in all of this person. He says, verse 49, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, and sing praises to your name. That, that's that, that's the way we express our gratitude to God. We, we actually give thanks to the Lord and we sing praises to his name. You know, isn't it true? So many times we are, you know, we're on target when it comes to praying when we need God's help with a situation, whether it's a need or some battle we're facing or something that, you know, we just want God's intervention but probably one of the greatest areas where I know I can show neglect, where we probably all at times can fail, is then when the good praise report comes back, right? Or God answers the prayer, 
uh, or, uh, you know, the Lord comes through and he provides for a need or in some way that, you know, the money comes about that we needed for a situation or we get a good report back or whatever is we forget to thank God. <laughs> We're great at asking God for stuff, but I'm really at times negligent to, to pray in the sense of, okay, I prayed and asked God to help. God intervened or God did something, but do I pause and say, okay, let, let, let's, let's pause and let's thank God for answering prayer in this. Let's give glory to God. Lord, thank you that you provided. Thank you that it's you know, not a bad doctor's report. Lord, thank you that uh, you worked in this situation. And a lot of times that's the area where we make a mistake is we're not the best at giving thanks. Again, remember that was what Jesus called out the 10 lepers for. Remember he healed the 10 lepers. And, and then the Bible tells us that only one came back and gave glory. And Jesus said, like, where are the other nine? And again, it just shows the human tendency that we have. So David says, you know what? Therefore, in light of these things, I'm going to give thanks to you, Lord. He says, and I'm going to sing praises to your name. One of the greatest ways to do that. I don't know why and how it is that God gets pleasure from us singing praises to his name, but he does. And so if that's what he is looking for, we want to give that to him. Our voices, our hearts being lifted to him in song. It's what honors him. It's what blesses him for what he does for us. Psalm 19, a fantastic psalm, speaks to us much about the revelation of God. And God is a God of revelation. And by that, what we mean is that God wants to reveal himself. He wants to show himself. He wants us to understand things about him. And so Psalm 19 is a psalm about the revelation of God. And two things particularly, David talks, first of all, in verses uh, you know, one through six about general revelation. And he's going to say God brings about general revelation through creation, through nature. And then he's going to talk about in verses seven down through verse 11 about specific or uh, direct revelation, you might say. That is, there's, there's general revelation. God gives general revelation in just nature and creation itself. God speaks through those things and reveals his reality, his existence, things about his power and nature. But then there's more specific direct revelation, and that comes through the scripture itself. Through the inspired written word of God, we get more specific and direct revelation of who God is. And we see that in verses 7 through verse 11. So David begins to talk about God's revelation in a general sense. And he says, first of all, it comes through creation. Look what he says, verse one. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament, that's a term for the atmosphere, the, the sky, shows his handiwork or his design. That's the idea, his handiwork. It shows his design. Now, when David says there in verse one, the heavens declare, make a declaration or speak about the glory of God, He's not talking there when he uses the word heavens in that sense of the eternal heavens or what we may think of in the first sense of the heavens or heaven is the dwelling place of God. Understand when the Bible uses the word heavens, it's actually used on occasion in, in three different ways. There's the atmospheric heavens, that is the sky, the clouds and so forth where uh, you know rain comes from. Then there's the term heavens used in the sense of the stellar heavens. That is our outer space, solar system, galaxies, all those kind of things. 
And then there's the eternal heavens. So when the Bible uses the word heavens, it could be used in any one of those three sentence, uh, senses. So it depends upon the context. And here, as David's talking about creation, nature, and these things, how they reveal God's glory and speak about his design and his order, here he's no doubt talking about most likely the, the atmospheric heavens and perhaps even maybe the stellar heavens as well, that these are things that testify of creation, God's created order about God's handiwork and design. And David says, these literal things, they declare the glory of God. As you look and you see those kind of things, they testify in their incredible design that there's a designer. They indicate, look, things aren't chaotic. They're very orderly. There's a design in the way these things function. And it indicates clearly there has got to be an architect behind this. This isn't just something that randomly came about, that there's clear design and order and complexity to these things. And he says that the creation itself declares these very things to us, the atmosphere, the way things function, the systems, how they operate. He says, verse two, day unto day, every day that happens, every day that comes about utters speech and night unto night reveals knowledge, knowledge of what? Of God's existence. Right, that, that there is a God, that there's a creator behind this creation. I mean, look, the Bible is very clear. You have to teach a person to not believe in God. Because creation itself, the existence of nature and creation and everything about it clearly testifies there is a creator. There is someone behind someone behind the design, the order, the complexity, there's a grand architect and this could not have just come about accidentally. There's just no way. I mean, you can't be a sincere, scientific thinking person in any way and come to the conclusion that it's all accidental. You have to teach a child to not believe that God created the heavens and the earth. You have to teach a person, you have to indoctrinate a person to actually exercise faith to believe evolution or that things just happened accidentally. That's why you got to teach that. God says, look, if you just let creation speak, it testifies of it automatically. People can just look into the heavens and go out on a dark night and look at the stars and see the way things operate. And it testifies day after day, night after night of the knowledge of God, that there is a God behind these things. He says, verse three, notice that even this this communication of God through his creation, he says, there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. In other words, it doesn't matter where you are on the planet. Anybody anywhere on the planet by simply looking at God's creation can hear the very voice of the testimony of God speaking to their heart in their own language because God speaks ultimately in the language of the heart. That's the language that God speaks in. He knows the language of every human heart and God knows how in the heart language to speak by his voice to the conscience of people the evidence through creation that there is a creator and that they have been created, that there's someone they're accountable to. There's a higher power that ultimately they would recognize that. He says their line has gone out throughout all the earth and their words to the end of the world. You know, as David writes this, it reminds me of what ultimately the Holy Spirit conveys through Paul the apostle in the New Testament as well. Romans chapter one, we read this. He says, 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men. And listen to what he says. He's saying this in relation to God's testimony through creation to all human beings that there is a God. That when you just look at creation, something testifies to you. You hear the voice in your conscience saying, there's got to be a God. There's got to be a God. But he says, listen, in light of that, he says, to men who suppress the truth. So you have to suppress that truth, to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And then he says this, Romans 1.19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. He's revealed it to them. For since the creation of the world, Romans 1.20, since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, created things, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. He says, because although they knew God, they didn't glorify him as God. So the word of God tells us that creation itself reveals the invisible attributes of God, that God is a God of wisdom, that he's a God of order, that he's a God of love and care that's set in order his creative systems and how things operate, that there's just enough rain necessary for growth and to take care of the animals and that plants grow. And so it all testifies about the attributes of God and that it can be clearly seen in such a way where he says it takes away excuse of mankind all over the planet, that everybody's without excuse, that nobody can say, hey, no missionary ever arrived here. God says, no, no, no. My creation was a missionary right there speaking to you in such a way that if you would have cried out and said, God, I know that you are real. I can tell you're real. Reveal yourself to me that God would answer that prayer. And so God says, everyone's without excuse. There's no one because of the general revelation of creation. He says the problem is people suppress the truth within themselves in such a way that though they know God is real, they won't glorify him as God. Why? Because when you acknowledge the existence of God, then you have to acknowledge accountability, that you're accountable to a creator, that you're answerable to someone in your life. And that's why men want to suppress the reality of God as creator, and they ignore the voice and the speech where this language, David says here, is being heard all over the earth. He says, verse uh, uh, five or verse four, in him he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of its chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from, notice, its heat. The idea is the effects of the sun upon creation. Nothing is hidden from it. Its effect, the effect of the sun, is upon everything and everyone over the entire globe. And he pictures here the sun in this very poetic way as it rises and as it sets, and he pictures the sun like a, a sun that it makes itself available for time, and then it goes and hides itself in a tabernacle, it's almost this picture like the sun, as it sets, it goes and hides away in a tabernacle in a tent for the night. And then it comes back out like a, a, an excited bridegroom coming out of its chamber. What an interesting picture, you know, a, a groom on his wedding day being an incredibly excited to come out of his chamber. He can't wait to get out and to be able to, you know, exercise his full right and opportunity to be together with his bride. And he says, this is like the sun. Every day it comes rising again, comes out of its chamber. 
And it comes rising once again to be used as an instrument of God to not only testify of his existence and his power, but to produce some of the things that help God in his creation. Now, after describing the general revelation through creation that God speaks and reveals himself through his creation, he now goes to verse 7 and starts to talk now about specific or direct revelation. And he says that comes through the very word of God or the scripture. Again, creation itself speaks in some ways of God's revelation, but it doesn't give a full picture. It doesn't give complete clarity or specific and direct revelation. So God has given his word, his inspired written word, to give us a fuller revelation of himself. And we're so thankful that he has given to us the very scripture, the law of the Lord. And now he begins to describe here in verse 7 down through 11, all these wonderful things about the word of God. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord, he says, is clean, enduring forever. And the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous all together. So we're going to notice verses 7 through 11. Here you have many descriptive characteristics of God's word. As the Holy Spirit is directing David here, who was someone who enjoyed both of these revelations of God. What was David in the earlier years of his life? A shepherd, right? So why do you think David wrote the things in verses one through six? Because David spent a lot of time out in creation. He spent a lot of time with the flock laying out in the fields in the middle of the night and saying, looking up at the stars and the solar system and seeing things in creation and evaluating those things and going, wow, God, and just being mesmerized as God was speaking things to his heart through creation. But David also was someone who loved the law of the Lord and recognized how the law of the Lord had had so many wonderful beneficial impacts upon his life. So he gives these characteristics now that describe God's word beginning in verse seven. And we'll notice some of them here. The first thing he tells us here is that God's word is flawless or God's word, we might say, is complete or thorough. He says the law of the Lord is perfect. The word of God, it's perfect. It's flawless. There is no error and mistake in the word of God. It's flawless as well as the fact it's perfect. Many times the word perfect is used in scripture to describe completeness or thoroughness. You know, a perfect circle that is, is just complete. It was nothing lacking. And look, that's the wonderful thing, too. God's word is completely thorough. There's nothing lacking in the word of God. We don't ever have to wonder about, man, is there something missing? Did not God not give us something? Everything that we need for life and godliness, everything that we need to know while in this side of eternity waiting to cross through the veil while we're in these earthly bodies god has given us sufficient revelation in the word of god we may think sometimes well it doesn't address this or didn't answer that look the reality is david says here look god's word's perfect the law of the lord's perfect everything you need to know god's given you a perfect enough revelation through his word for what you need to know now and think about it does anybody have a perfect knowledge of god's word you know, I just said to somebody the other day when I was, I was talking to a younger guy on the phone and he was talking to me about a 
particular book or whatever, and he was starting to ask me questions about books. And I said, look, I, you know, I read books here and there, but I said, you know, the one thing I've recognized is I said, you know, and I enjoy reading a book periodically, is I said, to this day still, I don't feel like I know God's word well enough. So there are a lot of great Christian books, but sometimes people read Christian books even more than they read their Bible. This is the best book. <laughs> Every other book isn't perfect. This book's thorough. And I don't even have a thorough knowledge of this yet, let alone to take on the imperfect, you know, completely unthorough thoughts of man about theology or this or that. Or, you know, they have their place, but there's no book like this book. And none of us have a perfect knowledge of it. It's the joy of continuing to learn more and more about it and enjoy its benefits. David also tells us here in verse 7 that God's word also brings change. It brings transformation. What does he say? He says, the law of the Lord is perfect. Notice, converting the soul. The power of the word of God, because it has been breathed out by the spirit of God, it is a supernatural book with supernatural spiritual DNA encoded in its truth and its principles and promises and declarations. Because it has the very life of God breathed into it, it is a book that converts the soul of mankind. Look, you cannot read the word of God with an honest and sincere heart and not have your soul converted. You just can't. You read the word of God long enough, eventually it will win. <laughs> it will. Think of people that we know, some of the greatest apologists who sought out to disprove the Bible and, and, and how it backfired on them. They read it, they read it, they read it, and God said, God, keep reading it, keep reading it, keep reading it. And then eventually God says that it's going to convert your soul. It's going to happen. And then it happens, right? It's happened to many of us. You know, it, it was through just reading of the word of God or hearing the word of God that eventually that's what led to the transformation of our soul. That's what led to the converting of our inward life, that we had supernatural change come into our life. And as we continue to read the word of God, even once we're saved and, and we're converted in the sense of, our spiritual destiny and eternity has been changed when we become a Christian. Isn't it not true? The soul speaks of the inward life, your mind, your heart, your thoughts, your feelings. Is it not true that the word of the Lord is continually converting your soul, continually changing you inwardly, continuing to bring transformation in your thinking, healing you, liberating your mind, you know, correcting you, altering your perspectives on things. I know that's what it does to me. It's constantly converting my soul, my inward man. The God's word gives that great benefit. He says the testimony of the Lord is, is sure. So God's word is reliable. It's dependable. It's something that we can completely trust its accuracy. It's sure and dependable. He says, rejoicing the heart. So another benefit of God's word, it brings tremendous joy inwardly. In comparison to a lot of the other things we read, listen to, and look at, right? You watch TV, you listen to the news, you check social media things, you, you see what's going on on the internet, you check your internet news websites. It usually doesn't rejoice my heart anymore. It just doesn't. Maybe it rejoices yours. It usually depresses me. But I don't read the word of God and get depressed. When I read the word of God or hear the word of God, it's actually some good news. It's just it's some, some good news. It's encouragement. Lord, I'm forgiven. Lord, you're coming back. You're going to get me out of here one day. Lord, one day you're going to make everything right. Lord, you're going to deal with my enemies. I don't have to stress out over them. You'll deal with them. 
God's word, it brings joy to the human heart from being in a place of constant depression. He says, and the commandment of the Lord is also pure, enlightening the eyes. So again, God's word also has a way to bring not only inward joy, but it has a way to enlighten our eyes, to open up our eyes, to let us see things more clearly. You know, as I'm looking down, I realized there from verse seven, I, I, I didn't draw attention to the fact. I love what he says, verse seven, making wise the simple. Another wonderful benefit of God's word. It makes wise, not the smart people, but simple people, simple folk like you and I, right? Just common everyday people. We may not be super intelligent. We may not have PhDs. Some of us may have, but he says, God's word is able to make wise just simple, ordinary people. And wisdom is so much more valuable because what is wisdom? Wisdom is the ability to live right with an understanding of what your decisions are going to bring about. That's wisdom. Wisdom isn't just knowledge or facts or information. Wisdom is the ability to live well, to know how to make decisions Considering if I make this decision, what will be the outcome? How to just live, we might say, with sanctified common sense. Or, you know, we use the term, hey, that guy's got a lot of street smarts. You know, he may not be the sharpest knife in the box. He may not have a college education or he may not even have maybe a high school diploma. But that guy's got a lot of street smarts, right? We know what we mean when we say that. That guy's got a lot of wisdom. He's got a lot of common sense. Well, this is what God's word does. It makes us wise, it causes us to increase in wisdom so we know how to live well and make good decisions and conduct our affairs in a way that are healthy in such a manner that are much more beneficial for our way of living. He says there, verse 9, And the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, and the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous all together. So God's word has a way to bring reverence to our heart, the fear of the Lord which he says is interesting. The fear of the Lord is clean. The idea is like it has a purifying effect and God's word does do that. God's word has a way to kind of give us a healthy reverence for God, right? And for his authority so that we live in a way where we don't become cavalier or brazen in our rebellion, but that we fear that we have a father who's loving and gracious, but our father be real quick to put us into place if necessary. And so that fear of the Lord keeps us in check. And it has a purifying effect. It cleans things out of us, wrong attitudes and wrong behaviors. It has a way of purging that stuff out of our life. And he says, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So again, God helps us to see clearly, to increase in wisdom, and even works in a way through his word that it causes us to realize, you know, God, your judgments are right in regards to everything and every matter of life. His judgments are true and righteous altogether. And the idea being is that not the judgments of how the world views things, not my judgments about things, but everything that deals with life, morality, or any matter, God's judgment is the right perspective on that. Whatever God's judgment is on marriage or sexuality or how to manage our finances or how to conduct our affairs as a husband and a wife or how to raise our children or how to think about things, how to be other-centered, how to forgive, how to humble. God's judgments are always right. A lot of times my judgments on things are wrong. The judgments of what the world's trying to convey, hey, here's the, 
here's the way you should think about that. Here's the view. You should, those judgments are usually a lot of times unrighteous and they're false. And we have to protect ourselves from false information. But one of the best ways to do that is, look, you just keep your nose right here and, and you get God's judgment on matters. And that'll keep you and I on a proper and a right track. Now, God's word having so much benefit. That's why David says, verse 10, God, he says, your word, the law of the Lord is more to be desired than gold Yea, then much fine gold. Now, apparently fine gold is better than regular gold, right? The purest form of gold. And sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. So he speaks in verse 10 how God's word has incredible value like fine gold, he says. And boy, is it not true the extreme profitability that we experience from the word of God. The value of this book is more valuable than anything else. Look, I, I, shoot me for saying it, but it's more valuable than a college education. It's more valuable than any training or education. It's more valuable than any ideas or insights. The value of the truth of God's word is incredible. David says it's more valuable than having all the most precious and fine gold on the planet. David says, if you offered me a truckload of gold or the word of God, I would say, I'll take the word of God. It's way more valuable long-term than all the gold in the world. Because David understood the incredible profit that comes from the influence and the usefulness of God's word. And boy, is that not true. I'll tell you, the value of what this book has done in this guy's life, incredible. Incredible. No amount of gold could do what this book, the word of God, has done in my life, has done in your lives. The value of it is absolutely incredible. And he says it's, it's like sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. And again, that was a desired delicacy. Honey would strengthen the body. It gave a sugar rush, so it would bring strength. It would invigorate. And the word of God does that. It strengthens us in those things that are right. He says, moreover, by them, that is the testimonies and truths of God's word, moreover, by them, your servant is warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. So David mentions a few other things that are beneficial about God's word. He says there, verse 11, that from the word of God, by its truths, your servant is warned. So again, what else does God's word do? It protects us, right? It protects us from things that would be destructive in our lives. It warns us. It cautions us and how we all need that, right? Like a parent, any loving parent is going to warn their children. That's what you do if you love somebody. You warn them, I don't want you to get hurt or I don't want you to develop a wrong habit or go down a wrong path. So that's what God's word does. It warns us as his servants. It, it keeps us and protects us. And notice, it says, by them, your servant is warned. That's important because if you don't want to be a servant of God and you don't want to submit, that's what servants do, right? Servants submit to a master. So our attitude towards God determines our experience with the word of God. If you are a servant, it means you're submitted to God's authority and you say, therefore, God, whatever you say, you're the master, your authority trumps my feelings, my desires, my preferences. If you have a servant-hearted attitude towards God and you say, I'm your servant, then God's word will warn you, it'll protect you. It'll caution you and, and keep you out of trouble from time to time in your life. And he says, God, in keeping or obeying your word, there is great reward. 
And boy, that is so true. To live a life of obedience to the word of God, look, it's a blessed life. It is. David talked about that back in Psalm chapter one. Joshua talks about that in Joshua chapter one. You and I, when we live a life keeping the word of God consistent with the scripture, there's great reward to live in that way. It's a blessed life and brings about a blessed experience. David says, verse 12, interesting, he goes from talking about God's revelation now to self-examination. It's almost as if as he talks about the word of God, he feels a sense of conviction and he turns to self-examination. He says, who can understand his errors? Well, none of us fully. Cleanse me from secret faults, he says. The idea of secret faults, God, things that I don't see, right? Because we all at times will err, but then sometimes we're so self-deceived and we're so desensitized to our own mistakes or wrong thinkings or, or, or you know, behaviors towards things that he says there, God, please cleanse me also from secret hidden faults. Right, The Bible says, Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And that's the thing with being deceived. The whole idea of being deceived is you don't know you're deceived or else if you knew you were deceived, you wouldn't be deceived. Right? That's the idea. That's the problem of it is that we don't even know that we're deceived. And so sometimes we're behaving in a faulty way or thinking in a faulty way and we don't even realize it. It's secret. It's hidden to our own eyes. And we're kind of oblivious or unsensitive to it. And David says, God, even the areas of my unknown faults where I'm not seeing it, reveal those things, God, to me. And how does God do that? Through his word, right? Through his word. His word is what shines the light on those things and gives us conviction and shows us the areas of our faults that we don't even see. And then he says, God, as well, I'm praying, keep me back. He says, your servant from presumptuous sins, let them not have dominion over me. And then I shall be blameless. That is remain guiltless. And I shall be innocent of great transgression. What did David know? God, I have the potential through my unconscious secret faults that I don't see that get me into trouble and I don't even realize I'm doing wrong things. And God, he says, I also know that I have a propensity towards being rebellious towards just being willfully evil and wrong at times. David knew the wickedness of his own heart. He says, God, please protect me from presumptuous sins. What are presumptuous sins? Willful, willful sins, where we consciously know what's wrong and we deliberately do it anyway, where we know what God says about it, but we just in a presumptuous way push right past God's warning sign, and we willfully do what's disobedient, even though God tells us it's wrong or warns us. He says, God, please don't let those things begin to have dominion over my life. I don't want to find myself, he says, in the midst of great transgression. And look how David concludes verse 14. He says, Lord, he prays, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. He says, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. He's he's asking God for help. He says, Lord, you are my strength. You are my redeemer. And so he says, Lord, in light of that, because you are my strength, you are my redeemer. You are the God who's revealed himself to me. And I want to live as your servant. He says, Lord, please, I'm praying. Let the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight. And notice, acceptable in your sight. 
not acceptable in other people's sight, right? Because we, we can say things that win the acceptance of other people, or we can say things and they're acceptable to us what we said. We feel that we're entitled or justified to say those things. But he says, no, Lord, may my words, may they have your acceptance. May they have your approval. And not just his words, but he says, the meditation of my heart, God. Because David knew that there's a difference between what's happening outwardly and what's also at times happening inwardly. And whether it's our words or our actions that happen on the outside, there's also a whole other thing that's going on that nobody sees. And he says, the meditations of my heart. God, you see what's going on in my heart. And may my heart be acceptable in your sight. This mattered to David, and it should matter to us. Let's stand. Let's